Greetings, Raise Community. Brent coming in live with today's guest, Jonathan Purvis, Vice President for University Advancement at Butler University and member of the infamous Little 500 Mafia, which for some of you who've listened to the podcast before, you might remember that we've talked about the Little 500 with both Matthew Ewing and Kurt Simic. And so uh, I'm excited to, to welcome a new member of that alumni community, Jonathan. I think I had a limit of five times that I can disparage Matt Ewing. Is that true? I'll see how many. Uh, no, today it's Thursday, which is unlimited, uh, unlimited disparagement day. Now we'll be nice. We're going to be really nice. Uh, I yes. know that, that, uh, that he's listening, but, um, <laughs> well, Hey, thank you so much. We, uh, what I commented when we were getting ready to, to start filming is, uh, that I can't believe we haven't already done this because I've spent a lot of time with Matthew, uh, or with Jonathan over the years. And, uh, that being said, what I've learned in every single episode that we've done now over a hundred episodes is as much as I think I know somebody, you don't really know somebody until you've interviewed them for a podcast. And so you ready, Jonathan? I'm ready. This will be fun. All right. Well, you might know that one of my favorite questions has really been uh, hearkening back to our respective college journeys to just better understand what led to, uh, you know, our, our initial path in higher ed. And so for you, uh, which I've already hinted at, uh, you went to Indiana University in Bloomington. I know you're in, involved uh, with the Student Foundation there, which we'll talk about. But before we talk about that, tell me about junior year of high school. Who was that guy and how did he decide? where to go to college? You know, it's really interesting. Um, I think I'm probably an example of that student that you know it when you, you feel it. You know, we, we hear that a lot when you talk to students about, well, you know, what was it about Butler? And they invariably say, you know, when I set foot on campus and when I saw the people, I just knew it was right. We, we hear that all the time at Butler. And, um, I have to say that was exactly my experience uh, at Indiana University. You know, I, I set foot on campus. If there's any uh, high school counselors out there, uh, you're going to hate what I'm about to say. But, but in fact, the only institution I applied to <laughs> was Indiana University. And, and that just maybe shows you how um, unsophisticated I was at that time. I would never advise that now. But, but, and um, where were you? Were you in, in the state of Indiana at the time? Yep. Born and raised as a Hoosier. Uh, out of respect for uh, uh, my colleagues at Butler, I have to say, you know, my, my mother was a Butler alum, my brother is a Butler alum, but I slipped through the cracks. <laughs> and uh, when I set foot on campus down south, um, um, that was it for me. But yeah, lifelong Hoosier, grew up just north of Indianapolis. Um, and uh, that, that started my journey in higher education. And so I know that you got involved with the Student Foundation, but, you know, one of the things about, right, large university, lots of things you could do, right? Lots of ways to spend your yeah. time outside of class. Um, what shaped your journey as a student? And when did you first even know that the Student Foundation was a thing, you know, that philanthropy was a thing? Yeah. Yeah, you know, we, you mentioned the, the, I think the Little 500 Mafia. That was it for me, for those of the, for the unindoctrinated so what 500. is the little 500? What is it? Tell us, tell us more. Well, they like to call it the world's greatest college race weekend. And I think that's probably true. It, it's a bicycle race. It's patterned after the Indianapolis 500, think bikes instead of cars. It's a relay race 
of sort, but it's 20,000 uh, spectators, fraternities, sororities. There's a men's race and a women's race. And it is absolutely the quintessential uh, collegiate experience. And um, that, that's what hooked me into the Student Foundation. Indiana University Student Foundation sponsors that event. Uh, and it drew me in. And of course, what it really does is it engages students in such a powerful way in the life of the university. And most importantly, it raises scholarships for working students at Indiana University. That's the philanthropic component of it. Um, the first race was 1951, and it's been supporting that scholarship mission ever since. So like many students, um, you know, I set foot on campus and I had no idea that people would give back to your college. That just wasn't part of my uh, awareness. Um, but it was through that student foundation program and through the Little 500 specifically that I understood, oh my gosh, it takes many, many generous donors to make this whole enterprise work. And very specifically, so many students just would not have the access to that transformative power of higher education without donor-funded scholarship. And the Little 500 was a piece of that. And can I just ask, because when you, you know, you could imagine it as just a great party weekend on a college campus. And, you know, it's the spring, it's like spring weekend meets this yeah. bike race thing and your friends are involved. How do you sort of, I, which it sounds like it is those things with exactly. a mission, you know, with impact. And is it hard to get that message across to a bunch of students who might just be excited that winter's over? I mean, how, how do you kind of balance, like, this is a great time, but it also drives real philanthropic impact and it can be a gateway into the student foundation or into becoming a lifelong donor um, for yeah. the people that are around the little 500. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, clearly when you're when you're talking about certainly a, a university, the, the size of IU, a big state university, um, you're not going to uniformly uh, express that philanthropic mission. But I'll tell you, the proof, the proof is in the pudding. And I know when when um, uh, I was working for the university, we did a good bit of research in this and we knew that, um, you know, students that had been involved with the Student Foundation program in some ways were four times more likely to give back to the university than those that weren't. So the, the proof was in the pudding from a data standpoint. But what we also knew, and I'm a product of this, we're seeing this now, the number of students that came through that program that then go on to work for the university, that go on to work in higher education philanthropy, that then, you know, you talk about coaching trees, it's March Madness right now. Well, that certainly is the case with uh, higher education fundraisers. I'm part of the CIMIC coaching tree, the CIMIC fundraiser. Right. And so is Matt Ewing and, and on and on and on. And that, at least within Indiana University, that all roots back to the Student Foundation. So um, data point well, after data point. Here's a wild fact uh, that re relates to what you just shared. I am on the Student Foundation Little 500 website right now. First of all, there are 14,300 living alumni not of Indiana University, but of the Student Foundation. That's so right. that's amazing, just from the sheer scale that we're talking about. And within that population, 68% of people give, yeah. which is crazy high relative to even the most philanthropic, small, you know, liberal arts community to, I mean, there's no school in the country that has a 68% participation rate 
Um, so to see that within a subset of the student foundation is, is pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it, um, in many institutions do this in their own way. We, we, we certainly um, provide that type of connection in many ways here at Butler, but for me, my undergraduate experience, it was at Indiana university. It, it so uh, palpably um, propels your life, transforms you, um, connects you with, with mentors and peers that provide this lifelong connection to the university, more broadly to the power of higher education, all grounded in the fact that part of the engine that makes this happen is philanthropy. This doesn't just happen through state support. This doesn't just happen for tuition dollars. If it's a private institution. This happens because donors who believe in that transformative power of higher education give back to make sure the next generation has the same opportunity. And, and that's really what's behind that 68% giving rate is that the student foundation is the engine that really instills that uh, in such a deep way that you're, you don't have any other thought but to give back. <laughs> what, what else yeah. would you do? And so tell me about what the next step was once you got involved in that community, you started understanding that philanthropy was a thing. Um, what was the next step? Student internships, involvement. I mean, just tell me about the rest of your progression at IU and ultimately what you did after college. Yeah. Well, I was, again, you know, when I talk about uh, relationships and mentors in my own life, that conversation always starts uh, with Kurt Simic, who was the founda IU Foundation president when I was an undergrad. And he um, became, he, kn he knew of me through the Little 500 and an opportunity came up to work on staff at the Student Foundation. And Kurt uh, kind of ushered me under his wing a little bit. And I had the opportunity to, for, for that to be my first professional position in uh, philanthropy, I was working as the staff person at the Student Foundation. And, um, you know, admittedly, um, that initially for me was like, oh my gosh, this thing that I loved as an undergrad, you mean I can do that and get paid for it? You know, I don't know that it was much more high-minded uh, than that, but what it quickly became for me was an entree into higher education uh, philanthropy. And on the staff side, you know, I, I saw how that worked in a more sophisticated way. And then, you know, that that led to a progressive set of opportunities that expanded my ability to make a contribution. You know, student foundation. And then I had an opportunity to work in the president's office directly for for Kurt Semek, leading IU's annual fund uh, on and on and on. Um, and then I think the. You know, thinking beyond any one institution, the greatest thing that that experience did for me is it provided me with a set of skills where I could make the date my, my fullest contribution, which is leading our advanced operation here at Butler. And um, every, there isn't a day that passes in the work that I do here uh, and the impact that my team makes at Butler that I don't look directly back to Kurt Semek as a person, as my great mentor, but that experience of the Student Foundation. Um, well, it, it all comes back to that for me. Most of us won't get the opportunity to work with Kurt Simic. Most of us won't get the opportunity to watch uh, him with donors or, you know, dealing with objections or closing gifts. And so for those of us who will never get that opportunity, uh, what should we know? What, what is the, uh, the cliff notes on, um, on just, uh, you know, how that 
experience, exposure, shape yeah. your perspective on philanthropy? Yeah. Well, I learned so much and, you know, in, in my role now, um, I often think about, you know, every, the, the way I do the job, the way I interact with our faculty, the, the, the members of my team, um, I'm very mindful that, that I am setting that model as Kurt did for me, <laughs> you know, and I'll, uh, I'll on occasion maybe catch myself thinking, man, I, I don't think I lived up to what what Kurt would have expected me to do. So I, I think about that a lot. But but the cliff notes are, you know, um, Kurt always, I learned this through his actions, but he would tell, tell this to me directly, um, treating people as people. And I just have countless stories of where, where Kurt would extend his opportunity to help somebody that had nothing to do with their ability to make a gift back to the university or their ability to, to, do, to do anything. But they were a person. And if they came across Kurt, he was going to do everything he could to help them. I mean, Kurt embodied what it means to be philanthropic in all ways. And, uh, you know, that, and that's, that sounds easy on, you know, to say that, right. But that's hard, <laughs> you know, you're, you know, you're busy and, and, uh, you know, everyone's got pressures, but Kurt never missed an opportunity to really help somebody. And ultimately, you know, it's so easy to focus on metrics, dollars raised, and that's important. You know, we have to do that because it takes uh, philanthropy to fuel our mission, but that can never be above what we're ultimately trying to do, which is improve people's lives through uh, higher education. I mean, the, yeah. that is what was ever present uh, for Kurt. And I really always try to live up to that. That's the cliff notes. There's a venture capitalist who is a friend and mentor of mine in the Boston area named Mike Troiano. And we had him speak at our raise conference a few years ago. And it's one of the most poignant sort of speeches that I've seen. It was very simple. Um, and he is not particularly, you know, he's never worked in philanthropy, but he, you know, is a prospect, right. And has been engaged with successfully and unsuccessfully. And he shared this story of, uh, growing up in an Italian American family in Rhode Island. Um, they always had this expression, uh, as it related to getting together with friends and family. And the expression was knock with your feet, which is basically when you show up to somebody's house because you've got the bread and the wine and the cheese and the meats, like you need to knock with your feet because you're going to lead with value. You're going to bring something. Um, and he really encouraged our guests at that conference who are trying to get mind share with donors and trying to secure that visit and trying to hit those metrics to really take that same perspective of, you know, you work for a university you are a conduit to relationships and access and learning and opportunities that if you think about that in the context of getting that visit, knocking with your feet, even if that is more digital in nature these days, right. um, is something that, you know, I always think about even as we're trying to build relationships at, at Evertrue, you know, it's sort of sales 101, but it sounds like that's a lot of what, you know, Kurt Simic uh, practiced as well. Absolutely. I love that. Knock with your feet. <laughs> That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. I, uh, I'm not a good storyteller. He is. So I just retell his stories all the time. It's great. <laughs> um, so 
so here's the thing. You have worked both as a student volunteer, then as a student, uh, you know, you know in, in a student worker capacity, you have worked in annual giving, you have worked with capital projects, you've done regional fundraising, you've, you've done alumni engagement. Um, what, when has it gone wrong? Any stories you're willing to share and your team is listening, it's okay, <laughs> where you've just, you've asked for way too much, way too little, any sort of moments of just, because this is a hard, you know, a lot, of, a lot of markets, right? You're doing marketing and sales. Yeah. Well, what's it cost? It costs <clears throat> this much. Do you want it or not? It's, it's, there's a price. Whereas like philanthropy, it can be a dollar. It can be a hundred million dollars and everything in between. You don't have as much to work with. And so any, any experiences that you're willing to share? Yeah. Well, you know, I'm kind of hardwired to forget the negative. That's okay. You can share uh, the positive, you know, unexpected but, upside. That's fine. But I, but I, I'll try to give you a straight and straight and answer as I can and not be one of those interview candidates <laughs> that answers that with the best, the best story ever, uh, you know, but I, I do think about this a lot. I think um, where I have gotten it wrong, it has usually been when I have strayed from remembering that ultimately this is about how do we fulfill a donor's philanthropic passions in a way that aligns with our institutional need. And I think it gets back to when, you know, if, if we get too caught up and when I have gotten too caught up in metrics or just trying to close that gift because we're trying to finish the fiscal year strong or, or whatever it is. And I've strayed from realizing that this is a person across the table from me that has their hopes, dreams, aspirations. Um, their life's work oftentimes is tied up in their ability to make the philanthropic contribution. When I've forgotten about that and I've only thought about the institutional need side of the equation or my own personal metric side of the equation. Um, I, I think that's when it typically goes wrong. I, I think if we're, when we are working really honestly with marrying the two sides, what is this individual's real passion? How can it help support our noble mission? I think frankly, then it's almost hard to get it wrong. I mean, I think you almost, you know, thinking you might ask too much and offend the person or, or ask, you know, not leaving money on the table because you're not asking enough. I think if you lead with really trying to understand how do those two connect, um, I do think it that almost um, ensures that you're going to get something right. Um, early in my career, uh, I'm sure I occasionally still blunder into this, but, you know, I, I didn't even know why I was getting visits. <laughs> it was just like, hey, I'm going to be in Denver and I'd love to you know, catch up over coffee. Hey, there's somebody <laughs> listening who just sent that email this week, by the way. But keep I bet going. there is. Yeah. And I, and I sent that, by the way. So don't feel bad if you're doing it. And I didn't even know why, but I knew that, hey, I've got to get X number of, of personal visits this month and I got to file a subsequent contact. And, you know, luckily, we are so blessed in higher education that our donors, they are usually so far ahead of us, <laughs> they know their passion. They know the transformative impact the institution has had on them. So even though we kind of blunder around, they often save us. <laughs> but but I didn't realize that. I was leading with, them, hey, let's have coffee. I'd love to hear about your experience. And not that I didn't want to hear about it, but you know, I think that's where I've gotten it wrong. And I probably did that for a decade. And frankly, you know, where where I uh, at some point I just said, you know what, I'm tired of doing that. <laughs> I don't. I mean, I'm not here just to hear people's stories and 
have coffee. I'm here to enable people to really do something meaningful to them through their philanthropy and through our institution. I think once I figure that out, uh, a lot of those misfires um, really start started to come into focus. And, and I can, fr frankly, I, I became much more fulfilled professionally because I viewed myself not as a, a revenue generator, but, um, you know, not to get too cheesy, but but a dream maker, right? I mean, we're helping bring people's dreams to life. I really believe that. So I've got a, uh, I'm just all about the random stories today, but one of my good friends from college played, played baseball at Brown and he now leads um, a Sandlot program where he, he teaches youth baseball in a super fun, engaging way. His name is Coach Ball Game. He's on social media. He's, he's really got a great following, um, but it's all about positivity and just fun, right? Not, not the high pressure stuff that a lot of folks are dealing with. And um, I recently caught one of his videos and as a washed up high school baseball player myself, it really <laughs> struck a chord with me, but I wonder if there's parallel to fundraising, which is um, basically said most kids when they're batting and they're staring at that pitcher and they're a little nervous because they don't want to strike out in front of their parents are thinking, you know, should I swing? Should I swing? Should I swing? Should I swing? And then if it's a good pitch, I try to swing, yeah. but then it's too late. Yeah. And he said, so the number one thing that kids got to think about is I'm going to swing, I'm going to swing, I'm going to swing. And then if it's a bad pitch, I don't. And that can be a, a real change in mentality that can just in one thing, uh, one quick change uh, of, of the mental state really improve outcomes. And I think about myself in high school and I was definitely the, should I swing? Should I swing? Should I swing? It's too late person. Um, and I kind of wonder if that's the way it is with fundraising, and especially as you think about like yourself as a new fundraiser versus an experienced fundraiser, your point being, if a donor takes a visit, they probably want to give. And is there just a mental flip of, you know, I feel bad. I'm asking them for money. You know, do they want to meet with me too? They probably want to give, they probably want to give, they probably want to give, like, let's just have a bias towards positivity. They likely want to be philanthropic. The question is how much and why, but let's try to get out of that, you know, I'm feeling guilty about showing up in yeah. the first place. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I love, I'm taking notes from you here. I got co Coach Ball Game. That, Coach that is, Ball Game. I'm going to yeah. give him a shout out too. We'll tag him on LinkedIn when we share the it. post. He is the best. James Lowe. I love it. You know, I, I heard uh, t um, some of you may, on the podcast, listening to the podcast may know um, Tim Seiler. And for many years, he was director of, of the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy uh, fundraising school at Indiana University. And he would just preach every time I heard him present, we should be unapologetic about our desire to invite people to support our mission. And I think, cause you know, that's kind of flipping the script, you know, we're not twisting people's arms. We're not, you know, um, I'm trying to pull money out of their wallet. I mean, we should be unapologetic about the fact that we, what the work that we do fuels life transformation. I mean, that just is what it does. You know, I mean, I believe that so firmly that, that uh, um, and it would, you wouldn't have to work very hard, Brent, to, to get me really uh, tearing up here. You know, when I think back about my college um, experience, I mean, it just, and I'm not different than, than most. I mean, it, transformation is such a, you know, throwaway term anymore, but it is just true. I mean, I, I just came out the other side a fundamentally different and, and better person. And if I hadn't had the opportunity to have that experience, you know, it just my life would be fundamentally different. 
And we should be unapologetic about the fact that we're inviting donors to help make that happen in other people's lives. And when you do that, you know, here's maybe where metrics or fundraising totals do come into that. It, it is always an upward negotiation. It's not about the bare minimum I, I can give you to get my name on, you know, the side of a building or something. It's about what is the most I can give you to have the greatest right. impact. And, and I think, you know, it, it, it took me a decade to really understand that as a fundraiser. And, uh, it flipped the switch for me. When you talk about that personal story, though, I, and I feel like this a lot, I feel like we have such an opportunity to tell that story in the context of higher ed headlines. Because higher ed is under attack. I mean, what yeah. you just said is like the counter narrative to student loans and tuition and ROI and all of these things that um, are valid concerns. But it is, it is such a doomsday scenario in so many headlines that like the little 500 impact story, your impact story, my impact story, my friend James, Coach Ballgame's impact story, getting to play baseball at Brown University, like we're just, we're just losing the narrative right now and just letting it be only about student loans constantly. Uh, and I feel like the, the, the human impact story that we live and that you see and help fund and your team funds every single day, first gen, low income, specific mentor paths, programs, we're just not telling that story. Yeah. I, I feel like to counter that, that national narrative right now. Yeah, we, we've got to be, um, yeah, I just agree 100% that we have to recapture that narrative. Um, it almost feels like we need a more of a lobbying effort or something where it's just, you know, or, or shared marketing campaign where, you know, and, and I do feel like the NCAA has done this pretty well, right? When they, when they talk, you know, there have been some really good ad campaigns about, about student athletes and, right, people going pro in something yeah. other than sports, but it's That's like, right. what about? the 95% of people that are not student athletes, because we are driving a lot of impact there as well. And I, I just, I feel like we're, there's so much focus on like the, the worst 10% of stories and outcomes that are yeah. just burying the great experiences that you've had and I've had and so many people have had. Yeah, yeah and, and I, I think the, the agree, um, absolutely. And, um, you know, the other, another piece of that, and I think this is where higher ed does uh, merit um, some, you know, healthy self-reflection, is really being as serious as we can. And many institutions are, I know we're, we have these conversations every day here at Butler, is the access piece. So how do we really make sure that experience isn't just um, for the privileged few or isn't on the backs of student loans, which that is a real issue. Um, but the, the life transformation, as I've said already a hundred times on this podcast, we know that is absolutely real. You know, we, we can, again, be unapologetic, as Tim Seiler said, about our mission. And then I think that's a critical part of our work as fundraisers is that we have the opportunity, the, the, frankly, the obligation um, to work with donors so that we can expand that access as broadly as possible. Um, and I, yeah, that, that's... I think that is the issue of our time as fundraisers is leveraging philanthropy to drive access as, as broadly as possible. Because we know, we know that when students are able to have this experience, it changes their life, it changes the lives of their family, it changes the lives of what they're able to do throughout their community. 
Um, that's an imperative. Well said. Let's talk about that in the context of Butler. Uh, it is March 31st, 2022, as we are recording this. And I see that on April 23rd, 2022, there will be a big celebration in Hinkle Fieldhouse around the $250 million Butler Beyond campaign. You joined you Butler uh, this time of year, four years ago in 2018, which feels like roughly 20 years ago. So tell me about uh, the four years leading yeah. uh, Butler, your first advancement, like top leadership role. Yeah. Uh, you knew everything one could know about IU. Um, <laughs> it sounds like you had some exposure to Butler, but probably had, had a big learning curve. Yeah. Uh, just tell me about the experience leading the campaign and obviously getting through it successfully in the midst of the last decade we've lived uh, in the last yeah. two years. Yeah, th thank you. We're, we're, we're very proud of the success we've had. More, more than proud, we're, we're grateful um, for the extraordinary generosity. But yeah, I, I did come to, to Butler to help launch the public phase of our seven-year comprehensive campaign, Butler Beyond. Um, we will officially end that. May 31st, yes, sir. Was it a hard decision oh. to join Butler? Uh, I'll give you a quick story. So I had really just decided, uh, I'm being real candid here in front of me and the millions on the Thank podcast. you. Thank you. Um, I had actually just decided that, that I was not, you know, IU was so good to me. Bloomington was so good to me um, in so many ways. And my wife and I had this kind of conversation, you know, do we look for what's next? Are we happy here? And it's like, hey, we're happy here. This is our home. I use our home. And when I got the call, uh, literally like a week later <laughs> from, uh, from Butler to consider the position, my wife just said, you got to do it. And, and I had the opportunity to meet with President Jim Danko. And I, I've told this story public many times. I ran out of Jordan Hall, which is our administration building. My wife was waiting for me. And I said, I got to work at this place but more importantly, I have to work for this man. I mean, that is just the, the truth. I mean, his vision for the university, what he had done, uh, is doing for Butler was just extraordinary. And, and the opportunity to, to serve on his team and serve in this capacity was just a no brainer. So um, as deeply uh, as I believed in IU, believe in what IU is doing, it's a great, great public institution. Um, I, I have just never been more fulfilled professionally and personally than, than uh than I am here at Butler. It's, it's uh, been extraordinary. Okay, two questions then. One, highlight of the campaign for you, you know, and maybe that will be April 23rd, but up until now, <laughs> uh, what's the highlight? And then second, you could go back and give Jonathan a coaching talk, a prep talk <laughs> in April of 2018. What would you tell that guy? Well, the highlight, there have been so many. Um, but really far and away, and I bet most of my team would say the same thing. When we publicly launched the campaign October 5th of 2019, it was spectacular for, for so many reasons. I mean, the event itself uh, was spectacular. Um, but I, what I think I'm most proud of is how the entire institution came together behind a unified purpose. And it wasn't just a campaign launch. It was really a, a launch of what Butler aspired to become uh, and philanthropy as, as a centerpiece of the way we were going to do that. And um, it, it was a, it was a whole 
university moment where we came together and um, I've never been more proud of, of being part of something in the way we, we launched that and, the, and the, the palpable impact that it had on the donors and our alums and our administration, our students that were there. We had over 1200 people in, a, in our Clues Memorial Hall for that launch event. And you just felt something really special uh, had been launched. And, um, and we've seen that the way our donors have rallied behind us, um, you know, 250 million, we're at 261 million now uh, uh, over goal, you know, is evidence of what happens. Again, I've said it before, when, when you engage the, the real passion of your donors with a really noble mission of your institution, when those two things come together, which is what I think we are able to do in that campaign launch and through this campaign, um, that, that's, that's the highlight of my career, not just at Butler, of my career. Congratulations. So that's, that's Thank you. Um, and there's so many other, and, and I, I just, I'm always remiss if I don't acknowledge my team. I mean, this has been tough. I mean, I don't think there's anybody in higher ed right now for the attacks that you referenced, COVID, financial pressures, budgetary pressures, and, and um, through ups and downs, my, my team has stuck with us. Um, they stuck by me as I've stumbled and had, I had my own highs and lows. And it's, um, it's just really been pretty incredible. You know, I think if I, to, to your second question, if I could give myself a pep talk um, four years ago, we, we've done a lot of things right. But I think for me personally, um, I would probably tell myself, you know, Jonathan, at times don't take yourself so seriously. <laughs> you know, we, we do important work you know, um, uh, being a part of the leadership team at, at Butler is important because of the impact that you can have on other people. But, you know, sometimes you got to lighten up, dude. <laughs> and I think that probably where I have gone uh, astray a little bit, and I bet my team would tell me this, uh, maybe I'll ask them, as, you know, just at times you can lighten up a little bit. So, you know, let, let yourself... Uh, and those working around you have a little bit more room to breathe. So I, I try to remind myself of that. I think I'm getting better. Can I ask you a question just in the context of telling the story and the impact, um, especially in the last couple of years or, or maybe because of it. And, and even, you know, we five months ago now have completed a merger between Evertrue and Thank You. It's been really Congrats. transformational for us. Thank you. It's been, um, it's been, uh, I mean, without question, the right decision in hindsight, uh, is everything perfect? No, but it has been just a, a game changer in the grand scheme of where we are and where we think we can go. But as we've now really adopted, um, you know, we brought two teams together, geographically dispersed, got people in 30 states now, which is just crazy to say, given that we were basically in two states before the pandemic, um, you know, hmm. five states or something like that. But as we you know, so we, we found ourselves at times, um, you know, even in our all hands meetings, right, talking about the impact or, you know, JD or I will tell a story of what we heard from Jonathan and the Butler team or, or whatever it may be. And, and, you know, recently we just started saying, why aren't we just inviting our customers to join our all hands meetings? I mean, they're a Zoom link away. Why do they need to hear about my, you know, rehashing wow. of a conversation? Like, let's bring in the voice of the customer, which in our world is, is impact, right? Like we're not as close yeah. to the philanthropy as you and your team are, yeah. but we are right kind of behind you all. And 
Um, we've done a couple of situations recently where we've invited customers to come in and just talk about their before and after experience of Evertrue or how they've been able to generate outcomes that they don't think would have been possible without Thank You, for example. And I'll tell you what, it has been so much better for our team to hear it from them than to hear it from me about them. And I'm curious in the world of philanthropy and, and, and the advancement space, are we there yet? Are we, are we inviting students to join our all hands story, to, to tell their impact story, or you know, to join our all hands meetings for that matter? And, and I'm sure that we do it in the context of April 23rd, you know, there will be impact stories or we will talk about the outcomes of the philanthropy, but, but how do we do that for our advancement teams yeah. on a more regular basis? And, and I'm just curious, not trying to put you on the spot too much, but I feel like that's been a real eye opener for me recently and, and something that I hope we can continue to, 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 to bring in that voice of customer to our team. And so for you, is it voice of donor or, or voice yeah. of student that can maybe, you know, counter some of the negative vibes that, that are out there at times. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that. And I, in so many ways, I love your approach to your own work, Brent, at, at Evertrue. Uh, I, I think the, the candidate answer is, is no, we're, we're not, we're not there. Um, I, I think you're kind of uh, challenging in a really positive way by asking that question. You know, I, one of the things that by and large, it's been extremely positive, but as philanthropy, particularly higher education philanthropy has professionalized, right? Um, there's plenty of good in that that's probably self-evident. But I think one of the things, I was just having this conversation last week is, we really have lost that. We have lost the authentic, you know, volunteer, donor, you know, not just being something you make, frankly, sometimes you're trying to make up ways to engage volunteers, but, but understanding that they, they are why, they are why we're here. The student is why we're here. The, the donors in, in different ways are why we're here. And when we become so professionalized that they're kind of almost on the outskirts and, and because we know yeah. so much, um, we push them out. I, I think that is a, a clear negative. And we have to think about, you know, I think we have to kind of flip that script in the way we think about it. And, and admittedly, that, that's a hole we have, I think, as a profession, certainly here at Butler. But uh, I love the way you're thinking about, you know, bring, well, why not bring the customers in? Yeah, I wish it was more kind of by design, but but candidly, we sort of stumbled into it because we've always had a tradition of, you know, hey, I, you know, I got out on the road and, and I meet you at the Big Ten Development Conference and then yeah. I'll come back and I'll write that up to the team or I'll, or I'll send a picture from the conference to the team. But that was all in this sort of pre-COVID road warrior yeah. kind of field-based thing where it was just going to be me and Jonathan or me and Matthew. And then I'll tell you all about it. Yeah. And now we're just a link away. And, and so we need to get better at it. And, and I will say selfishly, that's where like one of my favorite capabilities of our thank you product is we have this ability to request a video. And so odds are, here's, here's what's going to happen, by the way, just so you know, uh, <laughs> this, is, this is a new tactic that we've been doing. But but my colleague Solange, when we publish this podcast episode, is going to smartly get a list of all of the Butler advancement professionals, and she's going to load that into a thank you campaign. Yep. And I'm going to wake up one day and I'm going to have a text message that says, Brent, the episode with Jonathan is going live. Make a video with a little bit of a pep talk for the Butler team and invite them to watch the episode. And Love hopefully it. some of them will, which means <laughs> more of them will get exposure to yep. Um, ever true. They'll get some exposure to me. And it's, 
fun and it's authentic. Yep. And it's kind of like, what is your version of that, right? Where like, what if somebody in your team would request a video from a donor saying, hey, could you do a pep talk for our advancement team? Or, you know, find a student leader who is willing to remind your team, like, I wouldn't be here if it weren't yeah. for the work that you all do. Yeah. Thank you. And it's like that little stuff that, you know, it's not about the technology, right? Anybody can record a video. It's about the combination of, you know, making it streamlined, which we try to do, but then having a process in place to actually go out and get those stories and then retell them. And I do think in this sector, we do it so well in the public campaign launch on October yeah. 5th and closing yeah. the campaign on April 23rd. But how do we do it for our teams yeah. who could be doing other things? And um, so food for thought. Um, I know Love you're it. thinking of students right now who would reinforce that message um, for, for you and your, your leadership team. Hey, Brent, before, uh, before time gets away from us, I did, you mentioned the Big Ten Development Conference. Yeah. And I don't, you know, what would that have been 10 years ago now, maybe when, <laughs> when Brent I think hit the I, scene? Yeah, I think I got my big, my big break was when Greg Cap from Purdue University invited me to speak at the 2015 uh, Big Ten Development Conference, so almost seven years ago. And uh, man, you talk about inflection points on an entrepreneurial journey. That was a big one for me. Well, I so I, I'm going to put you in the spotlight here a little bit. You know, so I was there, and that's when I believe I first met you. And you know, you talk about you know, kind of turning a, a profession that maybe moves slowly. <laughs> traditionally on its head. And I'm not sure that everybody knew what quite to make of you, but <laughs> I knew exactly what to make of you, which is, oh my God, this is the future. And, you know, it's just been incredible for our paths to, to intersect over time. And now, you know, Butler, we're really proud to be partnering with Evertrue. We're kind of just dipping our toes in that. And uh, there's so much opportunity to, to grow that partnership for us. But talk about starting with what are we ultimately trying to do and then realize that hey guys you've got all this right in front of you I, you know i love that that your early version of your pitch which i know you evolved that you know if, if somebody wrote your president a letter would you just throw it in the trash you know your donors are writing letters to you every day on social media and you're just ignoring it. and um you know talk again flipping a whole profession on its head you've done that and i know you must be so gratified with with how you've grown ever truly Everything else. Yeah, but I, you know, I think about that conference though, and it did feel, you know, there were times when I thought, oh, we're way too late to this market, and then I was like, whoa, we're way too early to this market, and you know, now it's <laughs> starting to feel it. like, now we're starting to feel like it's getting just about right. But um, yeah, but at that moment on that stage with hundreds of you in the crowd, but most of whom I didn't know and hadn't had the opportunity to work with, um, that was definitely a feeling of the. Should I swing? Should I swing? Should I swing? Should I swing? I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. And I do feel like we're at a spot right now where it's, it's a little bit like your world, which is, I know this works. Like, yeah. I know what we're talking about. What would you do if you got a letter? I know the things you would do. How do we make that yeah. automated and simple and make it almost impossible not to do this? Because every single day, number one thing, that I see every day for every one of our partners. And if I jumped into our work with you all this afternoon, all I would see is untapped potential, oh. opportunity hidden in plain sight. 
And we are continuing to chip away at how we get there. How do we realize that opportunity without just hiring armies and armies and armies of frontline development professionals at times when budgets are challenged? And so uh, it does feel here, you know, seven years later, we got a lot to do, a lot of things to improve. Um, but it's much more, I'm going to swing. I'm going to swing because I know it can work. And not everybody's going to believe that or, 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 you know, wants the sales pitch. But it is the future. And it's the present increasingly, which makes me even happier because I don't want it to be the future um, forever. But tell me a little bit about, you know, the experience in the Big Ten. It is a very tight-knit community. You've also got the Little 500 Mafia and the Lilly <laughs> School Mafia and uh, just a great network uh, of friends and, and and folks that I know that you can rely on for your own kind of, you know, just friendship and, and counsel and that sort of inter, intersection of, of friendship and mentorship that a lot of us have. I know you and Matthew have a great relationship, but who are some of the other people that you, um, you sort of turn to uh, as both friends and collaborators in the space? Yeah, well, I'll give a shameless plug if I can. And, and, uh, you know, this I, is a shameless plug friendly podcast. If you haven't figured that yeah. out yet, absolutely go for it. I love it. So I just have the great fortune that when I came to Butler, they had already engaged a campaign counsel and a gentleman named Dan Safdig. And uh, I probably would not still be here without Dan Safdig because, you know, he, he does, he does what, uh, campaign councils traditionally do, right? They help you frame up the campaign and do the feasibility study and all of that. But what Dan Saptig has also become for me is a mentor and a friend. And in the dark days, which there always are dark days when you're in this kind of role, you know, he, he walks me back from the ledge. He, he gives me his, you know, 30 years of experience in these types of roles. And uh, that he, Dan has been uh, an incredible part of this journey. For me personally, professionally, and, and really for our institution, so so he is just such a significant part of that network. We, we've talked about Kurt. Uh, you know, I also have to to give a, a shameless plug for my wife, <laughs> who, in in so many ways, um, has 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 just been my rock. And um, you know, also I, I realized um, a, a superpower that she has. She's a mental health therapist, licensed clinical social worker. And folks that do what she does are superheroes. And uh, I think through the pandemic, kind of the urgency of the mental health profession has maybe, maybe taken a much greater kind of uh, awareness. Um, but what she does is she knows um, what, what ticks up here, right? And when there's challenges, um, she knows how to work through that. When, when I have struggles, whether it's with, you know, I, there's just something not quite hitting on all cylinders with my team or my own relationship professionally. Um, she, she usually can, can figure that out and help get my head turned on straight. So, so those of us that have spouses and partners that, that provide that for us, we're lucky. Let's talk a little bit more about that. First of all, Dan Safdig, I'm now seeing my first email exchange ever with Dan Safdig in June of 2012. So uh, about 10 years ago, uh, I had presented, uh, which Truly, wow. people did not know what to think of me when I presented to the GGNA conference oh. that Dan was at, and how I snuck my way in there at that point, I have no idea. <laughs> uh, I literally don't remember, but I somehow did. And uh, 
And that being said, I've never really gotten to know Dan well, um, but I have had periodic uh, touch points when he was at Arizona State. Um, yeah. But, but I, I will say I've not ever uh, really, you know, had a conversation like this one with Dan, certainly. So maybe this would be a catalyst we'll fix that. Uh, to do so. But, but, but what I'm hearing you say about Dan is, is because um, I know he's been with Martin Lundy for some time. And, and we know a lot of folks over at Martin Lundy. Um, is campaign council really code for like campaign coach slash campaign therapist? Because I recently started working with with an executive coach uh and he had previously worked with jd and the team at thank you and i'd been thinking about getting coaching for some time and now we've got a you know a much larger organization and it's going to continue to grow and i thought yeah i I need a coach this is my time and after working with him for a few months his name's john sanchez it's been great to work with him i'm like oh this is really just therapy but we call it coaching which maybe that's what campaign council is too i i think that's it i mean really I mean, the, the structure, you know, so it, said, everybody listening, it's okay. It's okay. Get campaign therapy. That's fine. Yeah. yeah. And if you marry a therapist too, it's kind of like a bonus, which is so tell me more about that because look, most people listening have not been uh, in an advancement leadership role. They have not led a $250 million campaign. They have not dealt with the highs and lows and the team issues and the doubt and the gift that falls through and all of that. Uh, while having to maintain optimism and positivity and, you know, nobody wants to see the, yeah. you know, the leader down in the dumps. Right. And, yeah. and that's why having, uh, you know, at least I found having that, that coach uh, slash therapist can be super helpful. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. I mean, I, I don't have much more to add. I mean, you, you nailed it. I mean, that is really important. And I think probably is maybe transforming um, the way we perceive that traditional campaign council, which was more of the data and the nuts and bolts and make sure, you know, you line everything up right. And that's important, right? But, um, but yeah, that, that coaching uh, is the other side of the coin that I think is just incredible, uh, really critical. So, and so what is it, you know, what's an example without getting into, into specifics, but <laughs> when are there times or what are the themes when, um, because investing in, working with Dan or investing with Martin Lundy, that requires resources. But uh, in the context of a $250 million campaign, it sounds like it's been a no brainer for you. What are the themes or the, you know, general issues that you feel you've been able to navigate better in pursuit of Butler's goals, thanks to that relationship? You know what? So, so I'll, I'm going to, I'm answering that question. I promise. But, uh, the, the last, one of the last things I did at IU, so this would have been March of, of 2018, and I started at Butler in April of 2018, is, um, uh, oh, I've got his book somewhere. Well, we brought in a speaker uh, to speak with my staff, and he had written uh, a book called The Chief Development Officer. And one of the things that he shared, so here I'm about to become a Chief Development Officer, is that, well, you know what? Often what happens is when a new president comes in, the first thing they do is, is fire the vice president for advancement. You know, And so here's where my naivete shows is I'm thinking like, oh my God, I'm about to enter a profession where like people get fired just because leadership changes. You know, not always, but right, you know, that, that happens. So, 
And he also said that rarely, of course this does happen, but rarely are you fired because you're not raising enough money. It's relationships. How do you manage the relationships internally, externally? One of the things that Dan Saftig has really helped me understand is he, he draws like a compass. And, you know, on, there's key stakeholders on each side of that compass and, and you're managing up to your president, you're managing to your board, and you're managing to your faculty and you're managing to your athletic program, frankly, a place like Butler. And you've got to keep all four of those points in equilibrium. And you can't raise real money and you can't lead your team to raise real money if you don't have equilibrium with all those points. And that's relationship. That's, that's the emotional intelligence uh, an awareness that it takes to make sure that, because you're right in the middle of all that. You know, when you're a fundraiser, you're touching all of those points and you've got to keep that equilibrium. And, um, you know, Dan has been one of those critical people for me that's helped me keep that equilibrium because he's been there and he's done that. And he's brought his own successes and his own failures to that. And uh, you talk about a force multiplier. It's having someone like that in your back pocket to help you keep all of those relationships in equilibrium. And when you've never done it before, I mean, you know, this is a first time for everything. So this is my, this is my first time in this role. I've been around it a lot. Um, to, to have that kind of person backing you up is just, uh, you know, incredible. I've been really, really lucky. Uh, great shout out to Dan, clearly well-deserved. And uh, Dan, hope you're listening. Uh, hey, Solange, let's send Dan a thank you with this episode too, okay? You listening? All right, we got that. Uh, hey. We're going to need to wrap here relatively soon, yep. but I've always heard that you're either in a campaign, finishing cam a campaign, or starting a campaign. So you are actually finishing a campaign. Probably it's finished by the time this episode is published. Does that mean you're already starting a campaign? Or like, do you get a hot minute to just take a deep breath? Or like, what happens after a $250 million campaign? Yeah, yeah well, we're, we're going to take a little break. In fact, um, I got a shout out to our president, Jim Danko. We're actually going to be able to shut the office down for a week to let people decompress a little bit, like a hard awesome. stop. Um, I think that's really important. I, I preach to my team, take your PTO. But no, we're, we're, um, we're already thinking about what's next. Um, you know, and uh, that's, we're going to wake, we're going to close this campaign May 31st. We're going to wake up June 1st and know exactly what we're doing to advance the university. So stay tuned. The best is yet to come, Brent. Love it. Cannot wait. Glad to be on the journey with you. Uh, Jonathan, I'm super uh, grateful for your willingness to, to come on today. I know that your team is going to enjoy uh, learning, uh, you know, more of your journey. Yeah. And I know others will be listening out there. But on that note, uh, for folks listening who want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? I know you're active on LinkedIn. Uh, and then, you know, as it relates to you know, your team, are you hiring? Are you, um, you know, in a bit of a pause, which would be typical, maybe following a campaign, just what should folks do who are excited yeah. and want to learn more about Butler? Yeah. Love to hear from everybody for whatever reason, uh, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, uh, email me if you're old fashioned, jpurvis at butler.edu. I would love to hear from you. We are hiring, always looking for great people. If you want to make a meaningful contribution to a great institution that has a great culture, you want to be a butler. So shout at me. Butler Beyond. Hey, Jonathan, thank you so much. With that, folks, I am going to wrap up today's episode with uh, Jonathan Purvis, Vice President for University Advancement at Butler University. Go Bulldogs. <laughs> Go Dogs. Go Dogs.